1 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 is where we're going to be this morning. Last night somebody asked me as Thanksgiving has passed and one of the great traditions of Thanksgiving is watching the Dallas Cowboys lose. And I'm a, a Dallas Cowboys fan saying that. And so somebody asked me yet last night, hey, are you still a Cowboys fan? And I said, yeah, of course I'm still a Cowboys fan. Why wouldn't I be? They've been losing for most of my life now. And so why am I going to jump ship now? But what happens when a, a team gets together during the week? They develop a game plan, don't they? And this game plan is the strategies and it's the schemes that the coaches and that the other staff puts into place that if the players will go out and execute, will set up the team to do as well as they possibly can. And so the coaches will present the plays and they will present the plans to the players and they'll challenge them and they'll say, if you execute, if you do your job here, things will go well for you. In our passage that we're going to look at this morning, 1 Samuel 11 and 12, we're going to find that, that God has a game plan for Israel and it's going to come in the form of Samuel's final charge to the people. This is his final moment before all of Israel gathered together. And so these are some of his last words to the nation as a whole, though his ministry would continue for a time after this. And through Samuel, God's going to reveal his game plan for his people Israel with the promise that if they execute this game plan, it's going to go well. Hopefully all of us in this room want to do well in the eyes of the Lord. We want to be running his game plan in our daily lives. And so as we look to 1 Samuel chapter 11, chapter 12, specifically verse 14, we're going to find that God's game plan for Israel is still the same game plan that he has for us today. That if we execute as believers in Jesus Christ, it's going to go well. Again, if you have your Bibles, devices, whatever you have, make your way over to 1 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. To recap where we've been, we look back at 1 Samuel chapter 8, and the nation of Israel came before Samuel, and they said, we want a king. And they had, in, in doing that, rejected God from being the true king over them. Samuel warned them, and they said, no, we want a king. And so chapter 9 comes in, and God selects a young man named Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, and, and from the, the least of the clans of this tribe. And Samuel, you'll remember the, the account of the lost donkeys, and Saul goes out looking for the donkeys, and finally he comes to the place nearby where Samuel was living, and his servant says, well, let's go see the prophet. Maybe the prophet knows. And Samuel meets Saul, and he says to Saul, I've got a message for you the next day. Send your servant on ahead. And so the servant leaves, and Samuel tells Saul, you're going to be the king of Israel. And then publicly later on, Samuel brings Saul, or brings everybody together, all of Israel together, and, and he casts lots to reveal that God was the one choosing Saul. And so the lot ultimately fell to Saul, the son of Kish. And they look around, they say, where is Saul? And remember, Saul's hiding in the baggage. And so they have to go and grab him from the baggage and they bring him in to make him king. Well, now we pick up the story in chapter 11. And what we have to remember and bear in mind is, is from chapter 8 through chapter 10, Israel ha has yet to understand and, and really see the error of their ways. They're still thinking they're getting their way. They're still thinking we wanted a king, we've got a king, things are working out well for us. Chapter 11 hits, and this guy named Nahash the Ammonite comes to a town called Jabesh Gilead, and he lays siege to it. And the Ammonites were one of the peoples that, that Israel wanted a king to be able to, to deliver them from. They were concerned about the Ammonites, they were concerned about the Philistines, and so now we have the Ammonites on the scene, and they're besieging this town called Jabesh Gilead. 
And what happens is the men of Jabesh Gilead send a messenger out to the, the Ammonites and they say, what, what is it that you want? And the, the Ammonites say, well, what we're going to do, what Nahash says is, is we're going to gouge out your right eye when you surrender to us. And you think, well, that's odd. And on the one hand, it would have been a sign of shame for the Israelites because they would have been walking around with, with one eye gone and, and looking probably pretty disfigured. But then on the other hand, it was also a way to cripple the military of Israel. Because during this time, it was common for men to fight with their right hand, and they would carry the shield in their left hand. And when they would carry the shield in their left hand, their shield would come up and cover their left eye. And so they were left to see with their right eye who they were fighting and what was in front of them. And so it was common to gouge out the right eye of one's enemies during this time because it would have crippled them from a military standpoint because they wouldn't have been nearly as effective going into battle anymore. So that's what's facing Jabesh Gilead. So they send messengers out to Israel, and one of these messengers comes to King Saul, and King Saul's coming in from the field. He's plowing a field with his oxen, and you think, well, that's a kingly activity, isn't it? And the messenger comes to Saul, and he reports what's going on at Jabesh Gilead, and, and it says in verse 6, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them through all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And it says later, 300,000 men gathered together. So you have this message delivered to Saul, and Saul goes from farmer king to warrior king. And he takes the oxen that he was with and he chops them up and he sends them out into Israel and he says, everybody is going to gather and fight with us or I'm going to come do the same thing to your oxen. And 300,000 people show up ready to go to war with Saul. Saul leads them into battle against the Ammonites and the Ammonites are defeated before Saul and all of Israel and the town of Jabesh Gilead is saved. Well, after this, Israel, again, remember, they still have not relented, not repented, not seen the error of their ways. So they're celebrating they're saying, this is great. Look what our king has done for us. This is exactly what we wanted. See, Samuel, you were warning us about this, but look how it's worked out for us now. This is exactly what we were looking for, a king to lead us into battle and to fight our battles and to win our victories for us. And so they come together before Saul and they say, hey, Saul, find the men that were opposed to your kingship. Let's put them to death. And notice Saul's response, though. Still under the, the anointing of the Spirit of the Lord, albeit temporary, Saul makes a very wise response to Israel. The Saul of a couple chapters from now, the Saul who gets angry when people are saying, Saul's killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands, that's not the Saul that we find here in our text before us this morning. This Saul responds wisely, and he says in verse 13, Not a man shall be put to death, for today the Lord, Yahweh, has worked salvation in Israel. Notice what Saul does right there. Israel's all excited. Our king has delivered us. And Saul's response essentially is saying, yes, you're right. Your king has delivered you. But it's not me. It's Yahweh. God is the one who's worked your deliverance. The Lord is the one who's worked your deliverance. And so Samuel, seeing all of this takes place, take place, takes advantage of this. He gathers everybody together at Gilgal and he says, okay, Israel, it's time to renew the kingdom. I don't know if reading that, if you had the thought, okay, well, this seems weird because Saul's public anointing is not in the, the too distant past here. And so wh why are we renewing the kingdom? Is this, this is kind of getting repetitive. It's getting redundant, isn't it? But we have to ask ourselves, whose kingdom is being renewed 
in chapter 12. It's not Israel and Saul. It's Israel and God. What Samuel's doing here and what Saul's wise response set the table for is Samuel's going to Israel saying, Israel, you're, you're missing the point. Yes, you have your king, great. But understand that God is still your king and what Saul, your king, said to you is true. He's not the one working the victory. God, the king, the king of Israel, the the one that has always been king of Israel, he is the one that's worked this victory for you. And so come, let's renew your covenant commitment to him as your king. So that's what takes place in chapter 12. Samuel begins in chapter 12 by appealing to the integrity of his ministry. He essentially says, if anyone can bring a charge against me in the way that I have served you, let him do it now. And then he goes on and he reminds Israel once more, as he's done over and over again, of the sin of their asking for a king. He reminds them again that they have rejected God. And you say, well, why is he doing that? Because he's establishing why they need to recommit their covenant relationship before the Lord here at Gilgal. Why they need to renew their their kingdom at Gilgal. That it's not to do anything with Saul, it's to do everything with God as their king. And finally, we come to verse 14, which is where we're going to camp out this morning. Samuel says in verse 14, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Verse 14 is God's game plan for Israel. It's God's game plan for us as well. And he begins where I feel like a lot of us need to refocus a bit, and that's with this concept of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. This is one of those Christianese sayings that we throw out around the church a lot. We talk about the fear of the Lord, and we kind of go, oh, yeah, the fear of the Lord, that's good. And we, oh, I need more fear of the Lord. But when we're pressed on that, and somebody says, okay, so define that for me. What does it mean to fear the Lord? We kind of squirm and get uneasy, and we wait for the guy next to us to answer that question. Because we all like to talk about the fear of the Lord and like to say, yeah, I fear the Lord. But we're not really sure where in the spectrum of fear we're supposed to fall on that. If you've got your Bibles, turn over to Exodus chapter 19 for a second. Exodus chapter 19. A little pop quiz from our Awana days. What takes place in Exodus chapter 20? Ten commandments. Ten commandments, right? Right? Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He gets the commandments from the Lord. He then walks back down, and Aaron has apparently just taken the the gold at at no fault of his own and thrown it into the fire, and out popped this golden calf, right? Well, before that, in Exodus chapter 19, God shows up. Pick up in verse 9. It says, When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them. Set them apart today and tomorrow. And let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, and do not go near a woman. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. 
Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. You want to know what the fear of the Lord is? Put yourselves in their shoes. Man, I, I mean, there's, there's times I wish God would show up that way on a Sunday morning. More times I'm thankful he doesn't show up that way on a Sunday morning. But I think one of the, the problems, one of the barriers that we have to overcome with this concept of the fear of the Lord is that God is so domesticated. He's so familiar. He's so common. He's so tame. He's so contained. You know, you're not, you're not going to find a Thomas Kincaid painting of Exodus chapter 19. It's not out there. But this is the God that we serve, the God that we worship. The word in, in Hebrew for fear means to tremble with reverence before the Lord. As Samuel gathered Israel to renew their commitment to the Lord, he began by refocusing their attention on the gravity of God, the, the weightiness of God, calling them to fear him point number one for us this morning, you can write it down this way. God's game plan for us is that we recover your reverence. Recover your reverence. Deuteronomy 10, 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Starts, but to fear the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 13, 4. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him. Jeremiah 5, 22, as through the prophet, God is com confronting the, the idolatrous nation of Israel. God says, do you not fear me? Do you not tremble before me? So we say, okay, well, Pastor PJ, that's great. The fear of God, it's an Old Testament concept. No, it's a New Testament concept. In fact, it's a gospel's concept. Luke chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus has raised a widow's son from the dead and given him back to her mother. And the reaction of the people that were nearby that witnessed it was that they feared God. A little later on in Luke, Luke chapter 8, verse 37, Jesus goes in and he casts out a legion of demons in the garrison district and they flee into the, the group of pigs and the pigs rush over the cliff of the mountain and, and drown in the lake below. And it says that the people in the region feared God. God. And in fact, Jesus himself commands that we fear God. Luke chapter 12, verse 5, Jesus says, I will warn you who to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We don't have Exodus 19 anymore. We don't have Jesus walking around raising the dead and casting out demons anymore. We don't have even Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts dropping dead after they had lied about what portion of their prophets they were giving to the Lord. We don't have any of that anymore, but we serve and worship the same God this morning, don't we? And if he was worthy of fear there, he's worthy of our fear and our reverence this morning. What do we mean by this fear, though? Well, we're not talking about a paralyzing terror. We're not talking about the, the type of fear that a child who's been abused by his father has. 
We're talking about the type of reverence that's a guardrail to us in our decisions, in our actions, in our beliefs, in our words, in our plans. The type of fear that we can hold everything that we're planning on doing up to and say, is this something that I can say I'm revering God in what I'm doing here? And if we can't say that, then we need to leave that alone and pursue something else. See, again, God's not a a cosmic terrorist wanting to instill a, a paralyzing fear in you. He's a loving father who wants you to revere him in how you live because he knows that ultimately this is for your good. If you're a, a, a dad out there or have been a dad or even maybe some of our, our grandfathers out here will, will feel the same way about this, but you understand what it is to instruct your children and say, I, I want you to obey me. As dads, we want our, our children to have a, a, a certain level of fear of us, right? We don't want them to be afraid as the child who cowers in the corner from us, but we want them to respect us, to revere us so that they obey us because ultimately we understand that their obedience to us is ultimately for their good. And so God is instructing Israel, fear me. That's where Samuel begins with this final charge to Israel. If you will fear the Lord, the fear of the Lord is foundational to everything in our Christian lives. Everything. The writer of Proverbs, King Solomon, says the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. It's foundational to everything. It's also foundational to the rest of Samuel's charge to Israel. A biblical fear of the Lord is inevitably will produce within us a response of worship. Samuel continues, if you will fear the Lord and serve him. Fear the Lord and serve him. In the Old Testament, whenever somebody was in, in the presence of the Lord, their response was that they would fall face down on the ground. And it was an act of of worship. They were prostrating themselves before the Lord. And it was an act of worship that was driven by an overwhelming sense of of fear being in the very presence of God. Okay, well, we're not talking about that necessarily, but we are talking about a reverence-induced worship. Samuel uses this word, serve. It's the most common word in the Old Testament when it comes to the concept of worshiping, whether worshiping God or worshiping idols. If you think back to Exodus chapter 7, Moses goes in before Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, let my people go in order that they may go into the wilderness and what? Serve God. In Deuteronomy chapter 419, Moses is giving a, a, a command, a warning to Israel against being carried away by the sun, the moon, and the stars and enticed such that they ultimately turn and serve them. Well, we can't literally wait hand and foot on the sun, moon, and stars, can we? But our hearts can be enticed by their beauty and we can end up worshiping them in a way that we should only worship the Lord. And so when Samuel says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him, this word serve is talking about our worship of God. This isn't anything new for Samuel. First Samuel chapter seven, verses three and four, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines see Samuel's message had remained the same because God's game plan for Israel had remained the same it's something Israel needed to be continually reminded of worship God alone worship God alone worship God alone don't be carried away don't be enticed by idols don't be don't drift from him 
Serve him only. It's something that we need to be reminded of too. It's the second part of God's game plan for us this morning. You can write it down this way. Recover your reverence and worship. Recover your reverence and worship. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the foundation for everything that's following. And so as we are revering God, it should compel us to worship him. Does your conception of God compel you to worship him? The way you think about him, the thoughts that you have about God, do they lead you to worship him? Does it produce a a fearful reverence in your heart that prompts a worshipful response? How about this? Do you meditate on who God is, on what he has done in your life, what he's done in the pages of scripture? Do these things lead you to worship him? Do you reflect more on a daily basis on the attributes of God or on the attributes of your car? Are you more moved by what the Lord can do for you or what your new cell phone can do for you? In the book of Judges, Israel had drifted from God's game plan and God confronted them. Judges chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. He says, yet you have forsaken me and served, there's our word, served, worshiped other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go, cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So the question for us this morning is, does, does our game plan need adjustment in this area? Do we need to be more intentional to worship God, more intentional to meditate on the scriptures, meditate on his attributes? You know, our, our phones can be distractions, but they can also be great resources for us. This is an area that you need to, to improve in. Set a reminder on your phone, on, on the Reminders app that'll pop up occasionally throughout the day with even just an attribute of God listed so that you see that attribute of God and you have an occasion to think about that attribute of God, to worship him as a result of that. Be more intentional. Be reminded of God's greatness, of his power, of his authority. Because again, biblical reverence will produce inevitably worship. Think of Job. Think of Job. After Job spends most of the book pleading his innocence and, and saying, if only there was a mediator, somebody to go between me and God that could, that could plead my case. And then at the end of the book of Job, God shows up, right? And God reminds Job of who he is and what he has done. And he puts Job in his place, so to speak, with regards to the fear of the Lord and the worship of God, such that at the end of it, after God has finished regaling everything that he has done and charging Job and saying, where were you when? What's Job's response? He says, literally, he says, okay, I'm gonna shut up. I'm gonna put my hand over my mouth. And he worships. Why? Because he's seeing God for who he is. His fear of the Lord is driving his worship. The fear of the Lord is foundational to our worship, but it's also foundational to our obedience of God. Samuel continues 
if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. Samuel says, if you will obey his voice, again in verse 15, if you will obey the voice of the Lord. It's that familiar refrain, if you're a parent, you're familiar with it. Listen and what? Listen and obey. I don't know if you've got kids at home that you repeat that to over and over and over and over again. With our five, it, it's, it's pretty common in our household. Listen and obey, listen and obey, listen and obey. Why? Because listening, simply hearing the command, simply knowing the command is not enough. It needs to be carried out. It needs to be executed. It needs to be obeyed. This is the final stage of God's game plan for us. And it is, it's that familiar refrain that we use with our kids. We have to listen and obey. You can write down point number three this way. Recover your reverence and obey. Recover your reverence and obey. Again, if we get point number one, this idea of the fear of the Lord, that we need to, to develop, to cultivate more in our lives, a, a fear of the Lord, these other two will flow out of it naturally. If we have a true biblical reverent fear of the Lord, we will serve him only. We will worship him only. And we will be ready to listen and obey to his voice. In fact, the way worship manifests, it, manifests itself in our daily lives is primarily through obedience. The way worship is revealed in our lives on a daily basis is primarily through obedience. Do we worship the Lord in song? Yes, we worship the Lord in song. Do we worship the Lord through the preaching of his word? Yes, we worship the Lord through the preaching of his word. Do we worship the Lord in prayer? Absolutely, we worship the Lord in prayer. Do you worship the Lord to Caleb as you're driving down the road? Maybe. But you certainly worship the Lord in how you obey him and how you live out his commands. And that's driven by our fear of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, the great hall of faith chapter, says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. What drove Noah to obey the Lord? A reverent fear of God propelled him, compelled him, produced in him obedience. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul writes there, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always, here's our word, obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Obey by working out your own salvation. How? With fear and trembling. See, the fear of the Lord is connected to our worship. It's connected to our obedience. There's a, a, very, a very blunt and very sobering warning passage in Hebrews about fearing the Lord and how we live our lives. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 31. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 31. The writer says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved 
by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As, as believers in Christ, we don't have to fear falling into the hands of the living God. Nonetheless, the fact that, that he is the judge, the fact that even this verse in, in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That type of concept should instill in us a fear of the Lord that propels us to obey God. That on that day when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, we want what's being judged, what we've done in the body to be far more good than we do evil. Not because we want to be justified. We're already justified in Christ. But because out of a reverent fear of God, we're worshiping him, which is manifesting itself in how we live our lives this is where the rubber meets the road and our commitment to the Lord. This is that part of the game plan that's actually about executing the plays. See, the best strategies, the best schemes in the world are useless if you don't have a team that can go out and actually execute. In the same way, all the biblical knowledge in the world does you no good at all if you are unwilling to live it out in how you obey the commands of the Lord. See, Samuel knew how fickle Israel had been. The period of the judges, this, this peak and valley, we're back, now we're, we're gone, we're back, we're gone, we're back, we're gone, even in Samuel's own ministry. And so as they were apparently willing to recommit themselves here to the king, kingdom of the Lord, Samuel charges them and he says, you know what? Demonstrate it, show it in how you're gonna live. Fear him, serve him, obey him. I can tell you all day long how much I fear the Lord. I can tell you all day long how devoted to him I am. I can use the right language. He's my Lord and Savior. I can tell you I love to worship him, that I've got a great prayer life. But if you look at my life, you'll see whether or not any of these things are actually true. It's an old illustration, but it works. If someone were to follow you around with a video camera 24-7, what would that film show at the end of a typical week? Would somebody be able to watch that back and tell in reverse that you revere the Lord by how much you worship him and how much you are obedient to him. Fear the Lord, serve him, obey his voice. Do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow your Lord, the Lord, your God, it will be well. It will be well. I mean, that's, that's the, the great thing about this. God's game plan isn't, isn't just heavy, and this is heavy stuff. I mean, this is heavy, but at the same time, it's, it's buoyed by verse, the end of verse 14 where God says, it's going to be well with you if you do these things. And so for us on earth, we, we walk forward with that. For us as men here at Compass Bible Church, God's game plan for us is the same as it was for Israel. He wants us to, to walk in reverent fear of him. He wants us to worship him. He wants us to obey him. And none of that has anything to do with, with 
our, our salvation. Okay, that's taken place, taken care of by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, at the cross alone. This has everything to do with what we do after we're saved. That there's an expectation of us all. That there's a game plan for all of us from the moment that we trust Christ as our Lord and Savior until we go to be with him for all of eternity. We are day after day after day to commit ourselves to executing God's game plan. Fear, serve, obey. Fear, serve, obey. And so as we wrap up, how does your game plan stack up against God's game plan? Let me encourage you this this morning, begin by thinking through intentionally how can you cultivate a, a greater fear of God? How can you bring that Exodus 19, mountain-shaking, trumpet-blasting, thunder-speaking God front and center into your vision? A couple ways to do that. The best way is to spend more time here. Not just in men's Bible study, not just in preparation for men's Bible study, not just in preparation for the weekend services, but not just in daily Bible reading. Spend as much time as you possibly can here. Because the more we learn about the God of the Bible by spending time in the Bible, the more we will have this fear of God, the more we will worship him, the more we will be ready and and willing to obey him. I mean, be specific. Write down things about the Lord that you want to meditate on. Carry them with you, whether it's on your phone or on a three-by-five index card, whatever it may be. Memorize scripture passages. And be intentional. Be intentional about your time, your commute to and from work or to and from home, wherever it may be. What's on? Is it political radio? Is it sports talk radio? Redeem that time. I'm not saying you can never listen to sports talk radio. I'd be guilty like crazy in that. But maybe turn it off more often than not and spend time thinking about God reflecting on him meditating on him again this is God's game plan for us so that when we do stand before the judgment seat of the Lord we will hear well done my good and faithful servant you feared me you served me you obeyed me enter in let's pray together Father God we thank you for Lord foundationally we thank you for our salvation God I thank you that you haven't given us a game plan that we have to execute in order to be saved aside from to trust Christ as our Lord and Savior but Lord trusting Christ as our Lord and Savior will radically change our lives and as you give us your Holy Spirit Father you enable us to, to, to live this game plan out so I pray that we would all be men who are disciplined in this Lord discipline to cultivate a fear of you, a greater understanding of what that means, a greater reverence for you. I pray, Lord, that we would repent from being flippant or cavalier or too familiar even in how we approach you or how we come into worship on the weekend services, Lord. I pray that we would do so with a a weightiness, with a reverence, understanding who it is that we come to worship and serve. Lord, I pray that we would be men who are men of worship. Lord, who, who understand what that looks like to, to, to praise you for your attributes, for all you are and all that you've done, and, and yet also, Lord, men who are worshiping you and how we live our lives, that it would be evidenced 
in how we obey you, that we love you, that we, we value you, that we want to exalt you in the way that we live. I'm mindful even of, of the words of Matthew where it says, let your light shine before all men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and give glory to God in response. God, may we live those lives. May we be those types of men. Lord, in our passage, Israel was recommitting to your lordship over them as a nation. God, may we do that daily. May we wake up resubmitting ourselves for the day saying, okay, Lord, you are my king. I'm going to fear you. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to to worship you today with everything that I have. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you that all of this is ultimately, as you said to Israel, it is for us too. It's for our good, that it may be well. Lord, I pray that the rest of our time together this morning would be pleasing to you. Small groups would be just rich, that discussions would be good, encouraging, edifying, and that you'd be glorified through it all. In Christ's name we pray, amen.